This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. I'm Andy. I'll be presenting the program tonight, and I've got Vivian on the line to tell us what we'll be what we'll have to listen to. You there, Viv? Yes, Andy. Thank How you, you for being in the studio. I'm in no Sydney. No worries. Ah, how's Sydney for you? Well, it's good, but I've just been up at Mudgee visiting our uh, patron, Babette, and it's freezing up there. It looked cold no from the photos you showed me. Was, yeah. Bushfires in the south and um, drought all over New South Wales. So uh, unreal, isn't it? So what have we got coming up tonight, Viv? Well, tonight I think is a very interesting program. It's one of our big picture shows. Often we talk about the local and the campaigners for climate action, but today I've got some big picture thinkers. And the reason I interviewed someone last year from Malaysia, and I phoned him up again because Malaysia's had a change of government, and I thought, oh, I wonder how things are improving there. And he was really interesting. He said that because... Uh, they've got a new government. All the people who had alternative ideas, more progressive ideas, have sort of been able to come out of the woodwork and they've got ready-made plans to awesome. go forward. And the news, in fact, today, Dr. Mahati is actually challenging the Chinese on some of their big infrastructure programs. So he's mm. being bold. And um, my interviewee is Dr. Jayakuma Devaraj. He's a medical doctor, but he... Um, I did rem- I recognise the name and now it's all yeah. coming back to me from last That's year. Right. He was in the Parliament, and um, he didn't re- um, retain his seat, but he didn't seem to um, be upset about that at all. He was just really delighted that, that the political uh, cha- scene had changed and all new people were being able to come up and, and make the country go ahead, especially on some of the big things about logging and um, you know deforestation that is such a big climate problem for Malaysia. So Dr. Devraj is there. He's also a big picture thinker. He He's um, talking about, um, you know, these sort of green funds that the United Nations is meant to be putting in the way of poorer countries, developing countries. And he says, well, you know, too much money is going off sort of to the Cayman Islands. It's going into the bank accounts of the top. Yeah, right. Even smaller than 1%, the 0.1%. Yeah, I'm not surprised, actually. <laughs> that's what he says. He says that's the, it's a global... Um, economic um, unbalance like that and he wants to see the ASEAN countries, one of which is Malaysia, um, banding together um, with their common interests because he said otherwise the world economic system is just driving us in a race to the bottom. You know, they have to undercut each other with wages and and so that stops any climate action because, you know, if hmm. Vietnam can produce something cheaper than Malaysia, Malaysia cut, you know, has to yeah. do shortcuts. So he talked about the Bandung spirit that we'd had before where the, there's a kind of a getting together of countries, ASEAN countries, and um, seeing what they've got in common, trying to force the world economic system, the corporates, to not um, dominate them so much. It's the most interesting interview, and I really like talking. He's very, mo- um, you know, moderate the way he speaks, but he sees the big picture, and he said that climate change is already causing floods and heat waves in all the nearby countries today in India and in Kerala. We are, I think, 300 yeah, people well, we on the news. can see that, yeah, yeah. Massive floods in Kerala is quite an advanced state. They would have plenty of uh, social welfare and infrastructure programs there, but 300 people have died just yeah. because of flooding. Doesn't help. So, oh, yeah. And Vietnam, we've talked before with people from Bangladesh, so Dr. Kumar wants to give us that picture for that part of the world, Southeast Asia, and his main worry, I said, what's the main worry? He said, oh, well, food prices, because we import about 40% of our food in Malaysia, and if the prices go up, it'll make, you know, impossible to buy, and the poorest people, of course, will then be just cut out of... <coughs> They'll be the basic. ones to suffer, yeah. Yeah, that's uh. right. So he, he, I think, is just a... It's a serious interview. It goes through our 25 minutes, but I hope listeners hang in there and talk, listen to him because we don't hear much from Malaysia on our media. We don't hear much from that whole area no, of yeah. big, big picture thinking, you know, what, what, what they want and where they're heading. And because they've had a, j- a change of government, he said, look, it's, it's such an 
exhilarating. And most people in their lifetime don't have that experience of a real change of government where it's a real new chance given to everybody, and he feels they've just witnessed that in Malaysia. He was very uh, amazing. pleased about it. And the other person, completely different topic, but also big picture, was an Australian um, engineer I met at a conference called Dr. Hugh Hunt. He's from Cambridge University, and he'd been invited to that conference to talk about geoengineering, which is a topic we don't dare talk about mm. usually very much because it's too horrific to think of, um, oh, you know, the mistakes that could happen, how it's just the sort of wildest kind of experiment on a planetary scale. But, of course, as we see in Australia today, also the news is Malcolm Turnbull's reneging even or just to retain his political power reneging on the um, yeah. amount of emissions that we're committed to and, we're, you know, it was a pathetic small amount anyway. So mm. um, when uh, Dr Hugh Hunt says, look, the, the political system doesn't seem to be able to deliver the type of emissions cuts that we need, you know, as we can see in Australia, it's not doing that. And he was involved at um, Cambridge University in a program project called Spice, which he'll explain that. And it's funny, and I listened to the interview again, I could see both he and I were really quite hesitant to actually get onto the geoengineering. So we spent about five minutes talking about aeroplane travel and the carbon footprint of but yeah. <laughs> and all of us and what we could do in our personal lives, you know, cut down on meat, cut down on air, air travel, cut down on, you know excessive heating and cooling of the house and all that in the buildings. Uh, we were talking about that because I think neither of us really want to get onto it because it's such a big mm. subject. But he says that's the problem, that we're not dealing with it. We're not researching it. We're not um, prepared. And he he seemed to really admire engineers. And he said, look, in the middle of the Second World War in 1942, it was the lowest point people thought Britain was going to be absolutely invaded. And engineers came up with brilliant solutions he, in, the, in the talk when he talks to me, he gives some of these examples of how in the crisis brilliant solutions come up. And I think he's hoping that some of those climate engineering solutions will be made safe so that we can draw down the carbon. Yeah. Well, we it's even more tipping points. <laughs> sounds like a fantastic show and you've been hard at work as usual. I've been hard at work. It's not really fantastic. It's sort of really, you have to really lean into the radio and listen I, to it. I'll land something, I believe. They might turn off because it's pretty... But but I found both of those people a lot of yeah, very a lot of integrity. Like they're really struggling both of them with these big issues of the economic system and the uh, geoengineering possibilities. So I hope the listeners enjoy it. No worries, Viv. Well, I'll let you go because I'm just looking at the clock and yeah, we'll, go, so Kelly, we'll get through them. No worries. You have a nice night. And thanks, Vivian. Uh, so you're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and here is the first interview. is the focus of our show tonight. Dr. Jayakumar Devaraj is a medical doctor and member of the Central Committee of the Socialist Party of Malaysia. Last year, Stephen and I spent a day with him as he went about his electorate and our podcast called Malaysia Part 1 is on the Beyond Zero Emissions website for 20th of March 2017. So I thought this year we'll catch up with Dr. Devraj and get an update because I know him and I trust his word. He's very well versed in the way of the global trade and how things are sort of rigged for doing climate action for poorer countries. So today Dr. Devraj is talking to us from Malaysia and the government in Malaysia has had a radical change this year and I want to know if the Malaysian public is getting more involved in climate resilience, would you say they are? I don't see that very much, but definitely the public has been uh, very, very happy with the changes that took place, and it's given them confidence that if they are active and they, you know, speak up, things can change. So it's good for public activism. Sounds like there's a lot of positive feeling. People are very hopeful, at least, and they feel that the corruption that of the previous government is being rooted out, even though some of the old, same old people are still there. That's right. That's right. 
people are very optimistic. Yes. Well, you gave a talk recently in Kuala Lumpur at a conference and you said that the global system of trade has got to change before countries like Malaysia can achieve the sustainable development goals, which we've been lulled in the West, I think, into believing can be achieved without much pain to ourselves, you know, business as usual. Could you elaborate on what you said to that conference? Well, what I said to the conference is that the uh, SDG mantras don't look at the underlying injustices that are embedded in the whole global system, and uh, which is basically that though there is growth, much of that growth, much of the income goes to the top 1% or even a smaller proportion. And the remaining people, especially the bottom 50%, get a very little part of that growth. So if you don't address that, the SDGs seem to, seem to pretend that doesn't exist, you know, that everything is fine and everyone has got to concern on these goals. But uh, the fact that the whole global trade system is sacked against developing countries is not taken into account by the SDGs. Some of the, the sustainable living goals, they sort of underpin climate change. Um, tell us a bit more about those ones that you, in fact, I gather that you feel that you can't really achieve climate action as you might wish to from the Paris Agreement if you don't have more favourable conditions from the global trading system. Well, you see, a lot See, let's say we're talking about you know renewable energy. Much of the third world actually needs more energy. You know, if you look at India, you look at Africa, the poor countries need to have more energy for their citizens. Now, to 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 bring in renewable energy, which is now a bit more expensive than the conventional sources of energy, you need funding. It's difficult for poor countries to generate extra funds for those kinds of. Of changes, the developed countries have promised funding, but so far, what's coming through is very little. And actually, if you look at the whole system, you can understand that the the governments, even in developed countries, are cash trapped. They have a huge sovereign debt, and that's because they are unable to tax the really rich in their own societies who manage to accumulate wealth and put it in the Bahamas and in the Cayman Islands. So even rich countries, the governments are cash trapped, and they have they will find difficulty in in contributing towards climate change action in uh, third world countries unless they address the whole uh, liberalized world economy which enables the top 1% to stash away their wealth in, 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 in tax havens. Yes, well, this is a familiar story for us, and I love speaking to you because I feel Malaysia, for our audience, is a sort of really comparable country. You know, you have about 30 million people. We have, I think, 25 million. Uh, you've got your petrol um, resource and gas, and we've got coal and gas. So we're in a sort of um, comparable situation. And I wonder, you've been in Parliament the last uh, nearly 10 years, and I wonder, do you think Malaysia will be able to reduce its emissions by the 45% they promised at Paris? I think that was by 2050 they wanted to reduce emissions. Yeah, I know they've said, they've said that. But, you know, when I was in Parliament last year, I, I, I catch them bluffing, really, you know. When they talk about forest cover, they also include... Uh, oil palm plantations and rubber plantations as forest cover. You know, so sometimes the statistics they're coming up with, you know, they're bluffing their way through. So I'm not sure what other countries are doing, are they doing the same thing or not. But sometimes countries don't quite tell the truth when they are talking about their compliance to what they've promised. That's right. Well, as you say, everybody is going to realise that around the world because um, nature's not going to care what we've got on our balance sheets and on our parliamentary papers because the, the emissions are still going up. And I wonder, you're very concerned about low-income Malaysians and I think low-income people around the world because they're the first to get smashed by weather events. And I wonder what thinking of... How would you survive a heat wave in the tropics or a flash flood? I'd like to know how vulnerable people are. We're not facing drought like in parts of Africa or South Asia. I think that's the most severe problem. Here we'll get the extreme weather events like heavier rains or rains of heavier intensity over a shorter span of time and, and flash floods, which is not so bad as what the people in Africa are facing, which is drought. Yeah, the problem that Malaysia probably will face is rising food prices because something like 35 to 40 percent of the food we consume now uh, is imported from all over the world, from Australia for one, from America and other countries. And so crop failure anywhere because of climate change or whatever reason will drive up the price of food and will affect us. 
Yes, well, you had quite a few ideas to counteract that that you'd like to see governments implement and they could implement it ahead of time. What Could you tell our listeners what you think should be done? Okay, what I think should be done is we should commit more land for food production. At present, we have, you know, we are, I think, the second or third largest producer of oil palm in the world, but we are not uh, self-sufficient in in rice, which is our main staple uh, cereal. The second idea I suggested in my paper was that we should take steps to maintain our small vegetable and fruit farmers who currently are being evicted by by so-called development projects, housing projects, industrial parks projects. So many of them are using uh, state land, which was not used previously, or, or they're using disused mining land to farm. And they are a major source of vegetables and fruits for the Malaysian market. So one of the ideas that we have is that the, they should be given leases to the land they're using, leases for 10 years, 15 years, so they can invest in this land. Uh, but the leases should specify that they cannot do anything else apart from agriculture. Uh, and specifically agriculture for food substances. Yes. So that would kind of increase the amount of food and, you know, maintain our food sources in this country. I think that's a very good idea to tie farming to what you produce on the farm, that you you have the land on condition that you're going to produce food, which is in the national interest. Because sometimes it is more lucrative to produce palm oil and oh, sell them there in yeah. the national market. But, you know, in a time of scarcity, we can't eat so much palm oil. Yeah? No. So I was amused also in your, well, it was amusing to me that some of the farmers have problems with monkeys and elephants. I don't think that's really amusing for them, but it, it seems so exotic to me. What were your solutions for that? Well, it's, it's quite difficult because, you know, what, what has happened is we have disrupted the um, chain in a way. So the bigger predators that ate up monkeys, for example, you know, the snakes, the tigers, the big cats in the jungle have dwindled. And so without that kind of predator to cull this population, this population has grown big. And for them, of course, fruit farms and vegetable farms are fantastic for them. They get food, so much food. So it is a, it's really a big problem, you know. In Malaysia, they've tried to put up some electrical fencing to keep the elephants out, but that's only partially successful because as Malaysia keeps on logging, keeps on opening up more plantation land, I mean, where can the elephants go? I mean, you know, elephants have got not much choice. Yeah. So it's something that we have to... In fact, one of the things that we are asking for, for the party socialists is that we should stop, stop logging. white gibbons like that when we visited Malaysia because the Taman Negara National Park which is part of the fabled and fabulous Malaysian jungle now very much endangered by logging was flooded and we couldn't go in but I wanted to continue with this theme with Dr Devaraj because as a young man he told us that he had been a doctor in Sarawak and he had noticed the extreme difference between people in areas that had been logged who had malnutrition, the children were really suffering all sorts of diseases and areas where the forests were intact and people could eat well and were well. So we're talking now about the climate challenges that are facing all countries and if Malaysia goes on being forced to log its land and devote land to lucrative palm oil plantations, then the food security is threatened. He's discussing with me the idea about leasing land, which the uh, tied to the idea that it would be for food. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions community radio program from Radio 3CR. Well, I think if you give leases to farmers, so then they have uh, tenure over the land. See, the farmer has for 10 years to use the land for food production. And it should be a condition in the lease that the land should be used for a certain set of crops, a certain set of food crops, and not commercial plantation crops. It can be a condition in the lease itself. So 
we can pay them into it. I think that's wonderful. I think this would be something in a lot of countries quite necessary. Now, in your talk, you said there are plenty of things that local government can do to protect the population, um, such as the sponge city concept and reforesting riverbanks. These are kind of infrastructure ideas. What what would you like to see in that domain? Well, one of the major problems we are facing is in Malaysia is flash floods because the intensity of rainfall has gone up. You know, we get um, shorter spells of rain, but much, much heavier rain, and the drain system cannot um, deal with it. And it's partly due to the development that's taken place, you know, land which was previously forested or possible plantations have become into housing projects, and and the surface runoff, the percentage of water falling that goes into uh, rivers has increased markedly. So what we need to do is to create, you know, ponds, retention ponds in all our major housing areas. And, you know, in some countries, like, for example, I know in Japan, in Tokyo, for example, they've installed huge tanks under certain highways, which can be used to store, you know, storm water. You know, in times of emergency, you can store the water for a while, you know, so it doesn't cost flooding. So that actually costs money. It's, it's basically needs this infrastructural development and it costs money. You know, I guess that comes back to the first point I made. That we need money for these kinds of things. And if we can't raise our taxes, even in Malaysia, we have difficulty raising our taxes against the corporate sector because the taxes in Singapore are lower than ours. We are about 24% of profits, 18%. So our government is hesitant to, in fact, our government is thinking of reducing it further because our government is scared that the uh, corporations will shift to Singapore or shift to Thailand where it's 19% uh, tax. And then so then, but then still operate in Malaysia as a subsidiary, but uh, the taxes are, are, are then uh, accruing to Thailand, not to us. Yes, it's a race to the bottom. We have the same problem in Australia with corporate tax being cut and always threatening that they'll go offshore. And, and in fact, they don't pay much tax in Australia anyway. They have all these uh, deals and ways of avoiding tax. But I'm thinking of the... Um, at the United Nations level, they were talking about green funds, and I think the last thing I heard was that by in 2020, about $100 billion per year would start to be flowing to developing nations. Do you have any trust in that process? Not much. In the recent uh, discussion in, they had in Bonn, I think end of last year, when South Africa brought up this issue and said, let's talk about the specifics of it and the operational details, uh, I think the EU nations and the US tried to postpone the whole discussion and they succeeded. So, as I said, the, even the nations, the EU nations, for example, most of them are deeply in debt, you know, because they can't tax their rich either, you know. So the only way now they have now to increase their VAT, you know, the value-added tax, which is actually going to burden the ordinary citizen, you know. So I think the basic issue of confronting the fact that the top 0.1% are just grabbing too much of the wealth of this of the world and they're hiding it and not paying their taxes. I think we've got to echo what Bernie Sanders said, you know, we've got to make sure the super rich pay their fair share of the taxes. We're not talking about expropriating all their property, but you know, they must pay their taxes. Yes. And you to you've got to change the international banking system and the international economic system such that what they're doing now is is then becomes illegal, you know. Now it's now we can still do it because they liberalise the economy so much. They can do what they're doing so called legally. You got to change those laws. Well, this is something that all countries in the world need to do. But you spoke about countries in your region um, getting behind something called the Bandung spirit, where third world countries would get together and stop tax havens and ensure minimum wages. And I think instead of competing to be the cheapest, they would be able to insist on, say, clean energy policies across the board. Is, is anybody is that an idea of yours or is this starting to happen among uh, the countries who are realising that, that the game is tied their hands are tied behind their backs really well, I think the ALBA project you know in, in, in Latin America is based on the same idea that we have to have to find sources of growth you got to basically if you pay the, the minimum wage goes up let's say in all our countries in, in, in the ASEAN region then basic that means that the market for our products also expands. 
and we're not so beholden to the markets of the rich countries. You know, if you are a very low-wage producer, then your domestic market is really, you know, underdeveloped. So I think we got to think along those lines of developing our local market, which means that all ASEAN countries have together talk about increasing wages together. Right now, say if in Malaysia we raise our wage too high, we'll have flight of investors. Investors won't invest in Malaysia anymore. They'll go to Thailand, they'll go to Vietnam. So it's a comparative disadvantage. But if you can somehow tie it in that all countries in ASEAN raise minimum wage 10% from wherever they are at now, because we are at different, different rates, mm. but we, from wherever we are, we go up 10%, and we bind it into the ASEAN free trade agreement, that we all do it together, then over 10 years, we'll have a much uh, deeper local market and much more business opportunity in the region for our own businessmen. So actually, it's a win-win kind of situation, you know, but uh, we've got to get this across. Yes. Do you think it could be tied also to some climate action across the ASEAN countries? It's all linked. Only if we do these kinds of things. For example, we could also tie corporate tax rates into this whole idea. And the first thing should be that we all agree not to lower corporate taxes. And if any country in ASEAN lowers it, then we will put a tariff on that country's exports to us, something like that. You know, So we tie it into our free trade agreement because there's a lot of inter-ASEAN trade within ASEAN itself. And we can use the trade pressure and say, look, if you don't come along with us, then maybe you should go on to say each ASEAN, all ASEAN countries should raise the corporate tax by 1% every year for the next five years. Now, if that money comes into government funds, that money can be used for renewable energy, that government money can be used to rehabilitate our rivers. We need more money, you know. We shouldn't be cutting the health budget to replant trees or the education budget to do something else. I think we should, we need more money in in government coffers. Yeah. Which means, and, and not from the Consumers, not by not through VAT, no, but by tax the, the, the super rich. I just think it makes so much sense, and I think that collective interest has got to be brought to the, onto the table because we all have this collective interest. Well, I have uh, climate change is top of mind for me, but it is impinging on on countries a lot with the flooding in Bangladesh, for example. Just recently, it's it's really getting horrific and horrifically expensive to deal with. Mm. Look, in recent memory, your country has been. I was just thinking about it today, colonised by the British, invaded by the Japanese and achieving high rates of a development since you've become independent. And mm-hmm. post-war, many countries did that too. There was a sort of a socialism that provided health care, national education and energy services. But since then, this ideology of privatisation, neoliberalism and free market selfishness has made um, people like Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders who say they're socialists, it it makes them sound like radicals. To me they just seem old-fashioned welfare state people and I admire what they're saying and hope that they prevail but it's it's nothing new. And I, I wonder with climate disruption now being such a big and new and global problem, what do you think 21st century eco-socialism have to offer? There definitely there is climate change and I'm not sure how much we can control carbon dioxide emissions and whether that's going to really reverse it very much but that's the best chance we have and I think if we don't do it we're going to see a lot of hardship all over the world and especially the poorer countries and the poor in the poorer countries are going to pay the price. So it's something that we really have to do. But is it anything different yeah. than, you know, renationalizing certain institutions? Is, is is there anything new in socialism that, say, Sanders and Corbyn haven't already said? Well, I think the socialism they're talking about is a kind of a, maybe it's a market socialism where it's, they're not talking about nationalizing everything or taking away the, 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 the capital of all the businessmen, right? They're talking about uh, better laws, fairer contribution to the tax system. You know, I think I think we've got to rethink it because there were problems with the Soviet type of over-concentrated, huge state bureaucracy, which themselves were sources of, of bad governance. Yes. So I think, I mean, like, for example, grocery shops, uh, hair-cutting saloons, do we need to nationalize all that, make that all state-owned? No. You know? No, I think certain things the market can look after the thing, you know, but wherever there's monopoly, monopolistic factors where the firms are so big that they control the market, that they can actually dictate prices, that's where in which society has got to come in. 
and make sure they don't bully the others in the market. But whether the market is made of small individual entrepreneurs, who I think there the Adam Smith's invisible hand works pretty well, and we should let, let it work. You know, so I think we have to rethink the whole question of what do we mean by a socialist economy? Can we have a socialist economy where there is small capital operating, whether there can be a market system operating, and where the state and the people are more concerned about controlling the oligopolies? You've got to think through these things and make it something that people will accept instead of insisting on on the old old uh, Soviet era type of economies. I'd like to finish just coming back to the fact that you are a doctor, and you told us in the first broadcast that you were when you were a young doctor, you were up in Sarawak. Since that time. In your country and in a lot of countries, medicine has been privatised and priorities are quite skewed, I think. And yet the medical profession here and worldwide is the one calling about climate change because they can see, you know, for example, dengue fever, malaria, these things might increase. Also, we have in Australia heat wave deaths and something called like heat wave asthma, these unexpected deaths. I wonder how would you like to provide for these future health problems that maybe we're not so suffering so much yet, but that we definitely will if the temperatures consistently go higher and the weather disruptions cause emergencies. Maintain the public health services. We've got to defend that. And we've got to mobilize people around that cause. It's quite important. The thing is, in Malaysia, what's happening is taking place slowly over time. And, you know, it's not a front attack on the public health services, but they are being undermined by the growth of the private health services, which actually draws away specialists and trained staff. So I think we've got to alert people and do a political campaign so people are aware of what's happening and how their long-term interests are actually being undermined. Thank you very much. Do you have anything else to say now to the Australian listeners just because we've got this connection which has been so dodgy and difficult to get through to you, but now that you're here, would you would you just like to say anything as a message to Australians? Well, I'd like to say that you know, in Malaysia, for a long time, we thought we were stuck with this government and whatever we did because of the uh, voting fraud and the way they controlled the, elect- the election commission, that we could not shake them off. But people kept trying, and suddenly we were all surprised to see that actually we could do it. And the institutions held us a bit of fear that <laughs> they might try to do a military rule or something like that to disrupt the whole process. But things changed. So I think, I think what comes out of that is we've got to keep trying, and sometimes things can happen unexpectedly, and we've got to be prepared when the unexpected happens to take to take advantage of that. We've got to be prepared. I think right now, Malaysia, we are at starting a new chapter, and there's a great potential for us to do things differently. So now a lot depends on have enough groups worked on alternative ways of doing things, because if they have those protocols and those ideas available, it will be so much easier now for us to implement them. So I'll say let's let's keep working for a better world. Things can happen. Thank you very much. And I think you're reading your paper. If that money starts to flow, if the, you know the new dispensation starts to happen, people are aware. You have a lot of ideas there, and it sounds like in your society there are a lot of ideas to quickly rehabilitate. You know, forest lands and. Uh, and the food supply and so on. I think that these are very important things to have thought ahead as the crises come on our heads. So thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you. So that was Dr. Jayakumar Devaraj, who's from the uh, Socialist Party in Malaysia, and he's speaking to us from Malaysia today by Skype. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You're listening to 3CR Radio. Hugh Hunt is from Cambridge University Engineering Department and I've just met him at the Climate Adaptation Conference in Melbourne. 
In a session called Pushing the Boundaries, Hugh Hunt told the engineers that we need to take geoengineering research very seriously. He told us about how his field testing was cancelled, how refreezing the Arctic is possible, but how we are just not putting enough energy into researching it. Of course, it's controversial, listeners, but the stakes are high. So welcome, Hugh. You started by showing us on the screen just what the carbon footprint of your flight to this conference looked like, I suppose, London, Melbourne. And you asked, why aren't we taking responsibility, even at that personal level, knowing what our own carbon footprint is? Why is that? Well, I don't think uh, people do know what their carbon footprint is. You, you get a flight from uh, Australia to, to England and... Um, that flight, you're going to emit perhaps two and a half tonnes worth of CO2. That's your own personal responsibility. But you don't, you're not told that. You sit on the flight and you watch the movies and you, you, have, you have your gin and tonic yeah. and it's a very pleasant experience. There's a bit of dishonesty or at least a little bit of sort of uh, subterfuge going on that the airlines don't want you to know what the carbon footprint of this is. And of course... Nations don't want you to know either, because international travel is, is good for every country. So you think there's a disconnect between the actual economy we're living in, the sort of capitalist economy, and the uh, messaging all around it. And so we, we come to conferences like this and we wring our hands about climate change, but we're actually not prepared to do anything. Well, that's right. We're, we're, we're sitting in, the, in uh, just next to the Crown Casino in the, in the Crown Conference Centre, and it's a, it's a lovely conference centre, and, and every city's got conference centres like this. But you could probably run a small town on the, uh, on the, on the energy that's required to keep the lights on and the heating going on in this, um, in this building. Uh, boy, there's a disconnect. And no, uh, we could. There's no reason why not. We could have a perfectly good conference... Uh, if you put up a few tents in a field and everybody came along in, in, in shorts and T-shirts and if it rained, you sort of got wet. But we don't think that way. We think every, every year that things are going to be bigger and better and brighter than the year before. But that's just not sustainable. Yeah. I've heard you, and listeners will know Professor Kevin Anderson. We've had him on the show, and I've seen you talking to him on a YouTube. I think it was at one of those UN conferences. And I think in England, maybe the atmosphere or the, the cultural environment is a little bit more progressive about um, what are we going to do about climate change. You've at least got some policies there. But you're an Australian, so I can ask you among Australians, what is there's a cultural denial here that's stronger than other parts of the world? versus Europe, let's say. Well, the, the cultural denial in Australia, it baffles me, really, because, um, you know, amongst my friends and the people I meet in Australia, everyone is saying, now, why the bloody hell don't we do something about this? Um, you know, you watch the Four Corners episodes on whatever it might be, and you think, God, it's just, it just all looks so corrupt. And, mm. it, and I worry that it is ultimately corruption, and that, yes, we want to sell you know, billions of tonnes of, of coal to India. Um, well, let's just not do that. There's, there's two things we've got to keep in the ground, fossil fuels and trees. And let's stop cutting down trees and let's stop digging up coal. Um, Australia doesn't see that, but I think Australians on the whole do, yet... You, 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 we've got lovely food and lovely places to visit and lovely things to do. <laughs> Australia's carbon footprint per capita is, is almost the biggest in the world. Mm. That's right. And I think it's that complacency that you're hinting at. And we had a talk there uh, at this conference about the Barrier Reef and about all the adaptation that they're going to try there. But it seems to me that they should say we'll ban all the coal ships and the gas ships that are going up the Barrier Reef. It's not so long ago that we stopped oil drilling on the Barrier Reef. We did a show about it. You know, the, the unions and uh, conservation groups just stopped oil drilling. They had licences under Belke-Peterson era. So we did it before. We should do it again just stop that because you can't just sit on the barrier reef and say oh this is a tourist industry we'll try and protect all of this and not look at the where the um, global warming is coming from 
Well, it's, it's got to come from it's got to come from government. It's all very well to have you know Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace and so on uh, activists stopping uh, stopping things from happening. Now that 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 does get a message across. But really, I think we have to demand from government that honesty about climate change and what is being done to uh, protect future generations from the ravages of climate change. And we really have to vote for a government that will wind down uh, fossil fuel consumption. Now, um, the reason that's not happening is that there just isn't a great deal of honesty and transparency out there. Um, you know, the fact that you can sit on a plane, uh, one hour on a plane generates 100 kilograms of CO2 per person. So there aren't many people who weigh more than 100 kilograms. Um, but if you're, you're sitting on the plane, just imagine if a 100 kilogram person were to come and sit on your lap after the end of an hour. And an hour later, another 100 kilogram person comes and sits on your lap. And then by the end of your three hour flight or whatever it is, you've got 300 kilogram people sitting on your lap. And everybody else has as well. That's how much CO2 that flight has generated. We are absolutely oblivious to that. And when you fill your car up, let's say 60 litres of fuel into your tank, just multiply by three. That's an easy thing to do. That's about 180 kilograms of, of, of CO2. You can't lift 180 kilograms. So one tank full of fuel is probably 10 times more than you can lift of CO2. Who tells you that? Yeah. And when you buy a, a, a box of cornflakes or when you buy a bag of apples or when you, when you buy some mangoes or when you buy a... a a, a tube of toothpaste. Everything has its carbon footprint. Mm. How do you find out? We're just. That's right. I went to Tasmania and I asked, even got as far as the captain of the ship to say, what's the carbon footprint of my ticket? And it's a big ferry across to Tasmania with many trucks on it as well as people. And they couldn't tell me. He well, just said, I'm just a simple naval person, I can't tell you. Cyclones is pretty grim. Shocking. Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. VZE Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide, literally. Well, that's. I think I've been sort of subconsciously avoiding getting onto geoengineering because it's such a big subject, but that's what you told us at the conference about geoengineering and you told us all the various different types. So I think the listeners will know some of the different types already. We've heard about it before. These solutions would have an immediate impact and you you favour certain ones. Which ones did you research? The best scenario for you to go ahead with your research, which one would you follow up? Well, I think it's important to say I don't favour geoengineering at all. No. It's a bit like saying, now, do I favour chemotherapy? I, so. I wouldn't wish those nasty chemicals on any healthy person. You know, your hair falls out, your, your liver fails, all sorts of things. So I would, I would exhort people to live healthily, to get lots of exercise, not to smoke, not to drink, not to, you know, don't eat nasty stuff. Mm. But... Um, if you get cancer, chemotherapy is a good thing. So am I in favour of geoengineering? No. But this planet is sick and getting sicker. There is any uh, geoengineering strategy which I would call the best. But I think one criterion of, of a, a good geo- geoengineering strategy is, is one that's reversible. One that you can switch switch it off and after a few months um, things go back to normal now we know from volcanic eruptions that when there's a big volcanic eruption like in 1991 Mount Pinatubo erupted and caused uh, global cooling over a year or so when we uh, look at the records from that time about a year later well, things were back to normal. It, it tells you that the, Earth, the Earth's response 
is um, kind of of the order of a year to um, pumping stuff high up into the atmosphere. You showed us one on the screen of 10 tethered balloons, 10 globally, which is very attractive because that's not massive. It's, it's scary to think that if somebody worked out how to do this, and it's not at all clear that it's going to be possible or even easy, but if someone worked out how to do it, we could achieve two-degree global cooling using uh, ten balloons, like, like imagine a party balloon, a helium balloon on the end of a piece of string. Well, make a big balloon. When I say big, I mean the size of the MCG. I mean a big balloon. Um, and that balloon holding up a pipe, and the pipe would be perhaps about the size of... I don't know whether you've seen the uh, when they refuel Formula One cars... They've got a pipe which is sort of a, about the size of your, your arm um, and it can fill up, a Formula One car fills up at, you know, maybe a, a, a couple of litres per second or something like that, maybe a bit faster. Well, that's the size, the amount of stuff we'd need to put up one of these tethered balloons. What stuff? What stuff? Now, there's a good question. I think everyone's agreed now that volcanoes put up sulfuric acid. Mm. And sulfuric acid is the climate manages it, the atmosphere manages it in relatively small quantities that occur every few decades with these big eruptions. But if we did it continuously, I think the fear is uh, that it could screw up the ozone layer, it could do all sorts of stuff. So it might that's the problem. We don't know. Everyone says it could stop the Indian monsoon. Well, it that, could, these are these environmental... That's what we've always stopped on this question of geoengineering because no one can describe with a fair amount of predictability what might happen. And no one wants to take that risk because even one-off, even on a trial, it could be massively disastrous. If, well, what we're experiencing now is massively disastrous. I acknowledge that. I know that. Right. Well, that, that, the, key, the key point is that where we are right now is... Well, we're in a bit of a shitty place because if we do nothing, um, what they call business as usual, well, I think we can be pretty sure we're in for several metres of sea level rise, perhaps in the next couple of hundred years, perhaps even sooner. Some people are saying before the end of the century. Um, now, that's going to be dramatically devastating. Uh, we're going to have changes in weather patterns, droughts where there used to be lovely verdant pastures and, and floods where there used to be deserts and it's all change. So Not even business as usual. Even if we do make all the efforts that now we're tentatively doing it, as Bill McKibben said, if we succeed slowly, we fail. Well, that's right. And so, so business as usual is, is, is a, a real extreme. Where we are heading is, I think, to the same end point. Um, we may succeed in slowing down our arrival at that same end point. Well, who cares? Um, where I think geoengineering fits in is that, um, it, yes, it may well have um, some, at, at, at the as yet to be determined, unpredictable, undesirable consequences, but let's put everything on the table and say to ourselves, well, look, we are in this shitty position and all the answers, all the solutions are going to be quite shitty as well because we have to accept the fact that to wind down our dependence on fossil fuels rapidly is going to clip our wings. We're not going to be able to do all those things that we used to love doing. And many people, a lot of people, are going to say, no, look, that's not, just, that's not acceptable. But and no government's going to mandate that. No, no government's going to mandate that. So it's, we're in a really awkward situation where it may be, just may be, that the government might mandate geoengineering. And, of course, everyone will put their hands up and say, no to geoengineering, no to geoengineering. But if enough people say, well, yes, let's give it a go... To buy time. To buy time. Or, or I would just like to know that it's safe, at least safe enough 
to to start doing whatever it might be. And my fear is that we're in a position now where the people's view of geoengineering is very negative, and I and I quite understand why. It, it doesn't sound like something that we should be doing. And as a result, uh, research in geoengineering is virtually nil. Um, any attempts to do outdoor experiments on geoengineering are met with with a lot of resistance, a lot of opposition. So um, it's um, my fear is that we'll come to a point where a government will mandate geoengineering and we will be caught with our pants down because no one really knows uh, um, how it's going to work. And they say, come on, we're in a shitty place, let's do this. Yeah, I think you said at the conference, like someone with the cancer who then has an oncologist who hasn't really studied up the exact dose of the chemotherapy that would be really tailor-made for you and gives you an overdose or an underdose or it's just completely really dangerous. You'd like to think that we knew enough about uh, geoengineering in all its forms, whether it's uh, marine cloud brightening to reflect sunlight or whether it's uh, whatever whatever it might be to do with the oceans or to do with stratospheric aerosols. We want to know enough to be confident that we're not doing something really stupid. Okay, we might be doing something stupid, but um, we're, we're in a we're in a um, we're in a corner where there are no there are no good there are no good answers. I mean, so many really committed environmentalists, really committed uh, um, um, eco positive people. Well, they still love to to go on their holidays to the Hayman Islands or they like to go to Bali or they like to go yeah, to... Yeah, as we said, that's the kind of obs- um, obscurity in which we live. We keep certain part of our brain sequestered from that knowledge. But listen, you said that you did get involved in an experiment, and I forget the acronym for it. It was on the screen, but but then you said it was it, the field testing was cancelled. Just tell us quickly what that was and why it was cancelled. So uh, about um, six or seven years ago, the SPICE project, Stratospheric Particle Injection for Climate Engineering, um, began um, with lots of uh, enthusiasm uh, for doing good research into stratospheric aerosol uh, 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 climate engineering. Um, And we proposed a little experiment with a balloon and a hose, a hose... um, the same size as that, that yeah. green garden hose you have in your garden, um, reinforced so it's nice and strong. We were going to lift the hose up to a height of one kilometre using a helium balloon. Um, and actually it would have looked no different to those helium balloons you see uh, in a marketing at the, when you go to the races or when you go yeah. to the fairground. You'll see a balloon up there held up with a piece of string. Well, instead of using a piece of string, we use a hose. And we were going to pump a bathtub full of water, just ordinary plain water. Um, and this was going to be done in, in Norfolk, in the, in the east of England. And at the time, it was, a, it was a drought. And the farmers were, you know, thinking, oh, fantastic. <laughs> no, it was only a bathtub. It wouldn't have made any difference. But there was no, no, there wasn't any protest. There wasn't any opposition. Uh, it was all curiosity. Oh, this is interesting. But then the the kind of the, this idea that ah oh, we've got to get governance frameworks into place before we do any experiments that came to the surface. And the idea that um, oh we're not allowed to patent any technologies to do with this that all came to the surface. And it all got very messy. And and we decided that we would not do this experiment because all right we better we better get the governance frameworks in place we better we better sort out how to deal with intellectual property and that's where it's at um, we're waiting for for governance frameworks and public perception studies and all these things to be done um, 
you know, getting back to the chemotherapy analogy, uh, now you, you've got cancer and you're waiting for um, FDA approval of, of some, some uh, new drug. Um, well, you're going to die. So... Uh, it's a bit of a not, I, I from your talk, I don't think you're against regulation, against ethics, against that. You, you were very thorough in your explanation of all of that. It's just that it seems to me that you sound like you're quite isolated. There's not enough people to really promote this, to get on board, to discuss it. And you're an engineer, so like, well, there should be a multidisciplinary team around a thing like this. Well, I think, I think that that's right. That what we're missing is a will, a willingness to push the engineering, the technology forward to a point where if uh, deployment of geoengineering became necessary um, and inevitable and beneficial, that we'd be ready to do it. I I think... um, uh, there are some of some of your listeners will be will have memories of World War Two, and around 1942, uh, things were at a very low point, and there was no real obvious way out. Um, but some inspirational leaders at the time, Winston Churchill was one of them, but there were plenty of them, said, "You know what? We can do this." And a lot of those inspirational leaders were engineers, designing amazing aircraft, designing uh, amazing technologies. And yeah, the Spitfire, of course, was one of them. You might have heard of uh, the damn buses, down, the Barnes Wallace and the bouncing bomb. And by the way, this year is the 75th anniversary of that um, event. Uh, the 17th of May. Um, is the uh, 75th anniversary. So I think that's a point to celebrate the power of engineers to achieve real change and real effect when the cards are down. You know, when the when you just you think there's no way out of this emergency, you've got to put your tr- faith and your trust into engineers and scientists. So I was thinking of Bletchley Park as you were talking, all the boffins that you see in movies of that time, you know, quite people instructed in Sanskrit, for example, suddenly being there to decode. So. It, it, it's, it's amazing what people can do. Um, it's also amazing what people can do in a short time. So um, I suspect when it comes to a decision, yay or nay, nay to go with geoengineering, the technology will be developed quickly enough, but the, a real understanding of what could go wrong, well, we'll be lacking that, and I think um, that's, that's a bit of a shame. We ought, to be, we ought to be doing all we can to create clarity about geoengineering. Just as we do with uh, chemotherapy, we do all we can to create clarity. And if you, if you or a friend or a relative are unlucky enough to, uh, to get cancer, the one thing you want is for your oncologist to say, well, no, these, are the, uh, these are the odds, um, these are the side effects, uh, these are the things that you, um, you know, you've got to be prepared for. Um, that's surely, surely we've got to do that with geoengineering. And we're not... Thank you very much. So that was Hugh Hunt from Cambridge University Engineering Department and we're at the Climate Adaptation Conference in Melbourne talking about geoengineering. Thanks to the team tonight, Roger on podcasts and Vivian for interviews. Thank you to Dr. Deveraj and to Dr. Hunt for exploring such big ideas with us. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, 
Zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings, and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.